0: I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. My guest today is a British journalist and writer who knows a thing or two about some of feminism's leading lights, including those who made some of the greatest gains for women worldwide. But she's made it her mission to uncover their sometimes unpleasant Imperfect Sides. I'd like to welcome to my studio Helen Lewis, author of Difficult Women A History of Feminism in 11 Fights, which was published earlier this year. Helen, I do want to talk about difficult women and the Uh ones you covered in your book, but before we get there, I want to talk to you about your upbringing. Were you a difficult child?
1: (laughs) I think you probably have to ask my mum that question rather than me. I don't think it's fair for me to say. I'm the youngest of five children, so I think by the time they got to me, they were pretty used to kids being slightly difficult but I like to think my vision of myself as a kid is that I just read all the time and didn't cause any problems but I'm not sure that's necessarily true I was a relative goody two-shoes until when I got to the last couple of years of my schooling I decided I would start hanging out with people in a tattoo shop and I got a tattoo and loads of piercings and my parents in a very middle-class way said you know one more one more piercing and we won't pay for you to go to university <laughs> um which was a threat that they luckily never carried out um and I went to university you know one of the reasons that I, I start the book with a divorce chapter Is in a way, that's the point when I kind of went off the tramlines of what, you know, a good girl was kind of expected to do. Until that point, I was, I think, pretty good, minor rebellions aside.
0: I remember myself as the perfect child and I used to read a lot. But anyway, whether uh, anybody else in my family would agree with that, they're safely in Australia, so we can't (laughs) ask them right now. When in your life, at that early stage, did you realise, hmm, girls get treated differently to boys?
1: Well, I think it came quite late for me because I went to an all-girls school and, you know, the evidence suggests that, you know, girls really do quite flourish in that environment because they're not subjected to so many pressures, for example, you know, worried about doing sport in front of boys, for example, or worried about looking alienatingly clever in front of boys, you know, and I had lots of female teachers, so I think I was very lucky in that sense that... I didn't get a lot of those messages. But I was aware of a kind of nagging feeling that, you know, there were some things that girls didn't do and they were expected to be kind of ladylike and sit still and all of those kind of things. I think I remember bridling slightly against... And, you know, I spent a lot of time reading historical fiction. I learnt most of my history from a historical novelist called Jean Plady. She really banged them out. She wrote <laughs> dozens and dozens. But, you know, I was reading about kind of Isabella of Castile, for example. Or, you know, I got very into the fact that princesses about the age that I was, you know, 10 or 11 or 12, would be sent off to someone they'd never been to marry someone they'd never met who was quite often you know, in his 50s, because he'd gone through a couple of wives who died in childbirth already. So weirdly, I think probably the kind of, yeah, 14th to 16th centuries kind of gave me my introduction to patriarchy really in its rawest form. You know, I was fascinated by the fact that you would read about these princesses and their lives looked so glamorous and they were on the diamonds and the pearls, but underneath it all they were kind of cattle to be traded by the royal families of Europe. And that's, you know, that's stayed with me ever since. When would you have first used the feminist word about yourself? I think probably not until university. Weirdly, I was more interested when I was sort of 16, 17 by atheism as a kind of rebellious. My family are are Catholic. You know, that kind of sceptical vein, the kind of... It was very much the era of kind of Richard Dawkins' book and Christopher Hitchens' book. And that kind of being my route into sort of... I guess free thinking makes it sound very grand, but you know what I mean? The idea that it was something that I I would do something different to my upbringing... And from there at university, then I started reading feminist theorists as part of literary theory. And that was the point when I thought, oh, this is really interesting. So you were at Oxford
0: and you were studying English. You, at some point there, decided that you would continue
1: your studies and become a journalist. Mm. Why journalism? Oh, I think I'd always wanted to be a journalist because it's kind of licensed nosiness. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I think of it. <laughs> it's the idea that you can go, well, what, why? You know, that irritating toddler thing. Why, 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 why? And your kind of society lets you... Do that, and I, you know, I've always loved writing, and I always feel psychologically slightly on the outside of. St- I'm not much of a joiner in. I think it's one of the things that I'm interested to know from politics. I think you have to be somebody who's much more willing to subsume themselves into a collective. Right? You can't get something done if you just want to constantly be in it. it's so incredibly individualist. I think that's a really important tendency, and I wish I sometimes I wish I saw it more in myself, but I'm definitely that I'd be absolutely hopeless in politics. But hopefully, that makes me a reasonably good journalist, and you just have to kind of follow your own destiny on that one. So, you
0: were thinking of yourself as a feminist, you were reading some feminist literature, but you picked journalism. When you went into journalism, did you see it as a gendered
1: profession? Were you aware of that? Well, yeah, yes. My first job was on the Daily Mail, where I joined the sub-editing training scheme. And actually, I think we were pretty much 50-50, or maybe even majority female. And actually, my course at City University, my journalism postgraduate course, had been at least 50-50. And I was very soon aware that there's no problem, and this is, still holds true now, getting women in at the floor of journalism, Right. I hired for the new states when I was there, and you would get twenty somethings walking in and and the women were incredibly polished, accomplished they had it all together, and actually often it was the the male candidates you'd see who were a bit more rough around the edges who you know had some skills but also you know weren't kind of didn't feel like such a finished package but then i became aware that there was something that mysteriously something that happened in women's 30s that meant that they didn't end up becoming the news editor or the political editor or the editor and that was a really big introduction to the fact that what i had naively assumed that childbearing had you know not been solved but had certainly been minimized as an issue but i could see it in the just physically who was around me that that was something that was not true in journalism and was it mainly the work family life issues you think that took women out I think there are a couple of things that happen in journalism. One of them is a is a sense that certain Bits of journalism are more friendly to women, or are, you know that women kind of get herded towards them, whether consciously or unconsciously, or for you know, sometimes it's women following their own interests. But it was very notable to me that you know the female section, the fashion section, the lifestyle section, loads of women there, very few women in sport, far fewer women in news. and that's something that women in journalism, an organization I was involved with for a couple of years, found out that what they call the kind of the hard end, that's the bit that has trouble keeping women in you. It's still quite a macho culture in some places, and an assumption that as a woman you're going to. Want to do particular types of, of journalism and I'm, I wonder sometimes how porous the borders are, you know, if you get designed to being a, f- a fashion writer, if you can ever escape that in a way that when I think I always think about this all the time, when you know most political journalists I know who are men are also wildly interested in football, they tweet at the <sighs> weekends all the time about the football and no one thinks that diminishes them or it's trivial or, silly, or they've got a silly little interest, right, whereas I think if you were a female political journalist, there's still a kind of expectation you will have to cultivate actively an aura Seriousness, and I went. To, I mean, did you have this in politics that you had to be extra serious because you were a woman, just to really, in terms of how you dressed and how you spoke, that actually any frivolity or fun was going to undermine you completely? Kind
0: of. I mean, you could use humour as a political weapon, hmm. so you could have a few laughs along the way. And I think you know the jousting in parliament lends itself to humour and people who can do the witty retorts. But you were conscious that there was a line to walk Mm. and a very fine line between being viewed as having authority but not being viewed as inhuman mm. it's a tough road for women to walk and certainly if you tried to just you know show all aspects of your personality so perhaps be crazily laughing or anything like that the risk would be that people wouldn't see that as just natural human behavior they'd see it as sort of silly little girl stuff
1: yeah I think there's that it's that discipline isn't it or control that I think you have to have as a woman to project authority you can't ever risk looking like you're winging it that's something that male politicians I think have a lot more latitude for you know when I think of Bernie Sanders and the kind of you know affect that he's got and or I think of Boris Johnson you're ruffling his hair I can't imagine female politicians being able to access that really and still look authoritative.
0: I think you're absolutely right and certainly you know all of the sort of research stuff tells us about the focus on appearance the judgment Mm. from appearance the judgment of women leaders when they're acting against the principal stereotypes that people hold in their head about women so So all of that means, I think, that a woman whose hair was quite as (laughs) awry as Boris or Donald Trump would be paying more of a price for it. It wouldn't just be viewed as a personal idiosyncratic thing. It would be seen as telling you something about her character.
1: It's such a demand, though. I always think about this, and I know this probably to lots of people seems incredibly trivial – but it, it reminds me about, you know, Arlie Hochschild's idea of m- emotional labour, those jobs like a cabin crew, where your job is not just to do the safety checks and stuff, but it is to project the aura that you're... Everything is fine, the plane is fine in the air, nothing bad happens here. And I sort of think there's a bit like that of with women in positions of authority. You have to do all of that stuff, and you have to have the blow dry, and you have to have the immaculate <laughs> suit, and you have to have the tights that don't have a ladder, and you have to have, you know, you can't have a bits of your kids who smeared porridge down your lapel in the morning. But you also have to look as if you're not making an effort because we also slightly resent what we think of as sort of try hards, you know, because that's exactly as you say. I think people read that as cold and calculating and not human. So it's an incredibly difficult pe- like jigsaw puzzle to put all together.
0: Hillary Clinton has done some maths, she's done a calculation of uh, how many hours she spent during the presidential campaign getting hair and makeup done and I can't remember the figure but it's some extraordinary figure to just Present in a polished enough way that people would go right. That's you know she's on the campaign trail and that's how she should look, as opposed to
1: crikey, look d- at the state of her. Yeah, look, <laughs> right. look at
0: the look at the state of her, or having gone too far yeah. and gone into the sort of trying to do a glamorous Vogue. You know, it's it's that sort of news reader standard that she was obviously aiming for in the middle. Tough to pull off day yeah. after day after day. I,
1: I wrote a piece um, for the Evening Standard about the the navy suit, right, and the fact that that is the neutral option for male politicians, and it just it's there. Obama famously had, you know, he just wore the same basically iterations in the same clothes every day because he said, "I'm making enough decisions every day already. I don't need to make any extra ones." One, I just wear the same thing every day, and I thought that I would, <laughs> was part of me. I mean, I really like fashion, I enjoy it, but I wish there were an option that were as just completely laid back as that, because there's not. You know, I find I can't do. Shirts up over my chest, for example, they would gape and that would be something that I would worry about. But then you come to have stuff like having a lapel mic put on and you haven't got any pockets to put the battery <laughs> pack in and there's no way to run it up because it's designed to run up a, a jacket, right? Every poor sound engineer I bored with this over the last couple of years, it just adds extra friction to your life. And that is a really, really little thing. I mean, I'm not comparing it to big problems at all. But it's just all of that extra friction adds up to makes women's path through life just that slightly bit harder in a way. It doesn't need to be.
0: When you were in journalism, you created a networking event called Schmooze and Booze. I think I want an invitation. (laughs) Uh, Tell us
1: about that. This was in the mid to late 2000s and when I was much younger, I was in my mid to late 20s. And it struck me that journalism had had kind of disaggregated in lots of different ways, actually, physically, not least of all, right? So it used to be that there was a concentration of journalistic headquarters on and around Fleet Street and people would kind of meet in the pub and they'd meet their peers. And I thought, well, that's not, you know, happened actually. At the time, I think, you know, all the News UK people were out in the, St Catherine Docks and, and the Guardians obviously up in North London and wherever and actually how what were the opportunities to meet people in other places talk to them about pay and working conditions. You know, I'm a big believer that actually transparency is really helpful and actually informal kind of whisper networks are something you should aim to build because they are a kind of form of protection And so I thought, well, why not have, let's have some drinks and let's recreate that spirit. I'd like to know what it's like to work in journalism. And quite selfishly, you know, because I was working at the mail as a sub-editor, so I was doing the production side of a print product. My standard working shift was 3.30 to 11.30. So I didn't have that many evenings where actually I could go out. So I could pick the evening and then I make everyone kind of come (laughs) to me. And I ran it for a couple of years. And I think, you know, we had a mailing list in the thousands by the end. And I met lots of people. The funny thing is that I think actually it wouldn't necessarily work now. Maybe it would, but to some extent Twitter has replaced that. Twitter is the journalist's pub now. It's where they kind of hang out and swap tips and stories. And, you know, some of that now happens by direct message or some of it might have moved on to WhatsApp groups, for example. But that was a sort of weird transitional time where it was actually quite hard to talk to people who worked in other places. And we didn't quite have the online solution to that yet.
0: And does that make it harder or easier for women? I mean, I think, you know, we've actually put out some research about women's working lives and after work socialising for the work and family life reasons can be more difficult Mm. for women. But certainly the online environment is not a happy place. So comparing the two?
1: Oh, yeah, that's a really interesting question. I don't know how you'd separate out those two effects because I think it's really interesting. My sisters have both got children and they both, when their kids were young, were very interested in places like Mumsnet, you know, parenting forums just because, you know, you want to go and seek reassurance that you're doing the right thing, your child is going to be okay, whatever it is, you know. And actually those places have become, parenting forms, have become kind of quite interesting hotbeds of feminist activism. Mumsnet, you know, there's lots of discussion about transgender issues on it now, very controversially, but it's a group of women who have run up against the hard fact of their biology, so it's not really surprising to me they would want to talk about those issues. So I think that stuff has been interesting and positive, and I've certainly met huge numbers of incredible feminists who I would never have been able to speak to without without Twitter. But yes, you acknowledge the other side is also there as well, which is there is a kind of slight climate of of fear. You know, I, I, I try now to not tweet things that are controversial because I just think, what's the point? it's a very odd situation because you also you don't really have a control group you know I I need to have a sort of what I think of as a bench man I need to have a man in my exact <laughs> position to see what his inbox is like but I do still get random emails out of absolutely nowhere about the interview that I did with Jordan Peterson now coming up for a year and a half ago saying you're stupid you're you know lots of more swearing than this you know you're a dumb whatever then my experience of life as a female journalist is of kind of occasional, intermittent, incredibly extreme hostility and not necessarily in predictable ways. And you've curtailed behaviour because of that. You try
0: not to put out things that will draw that kind of vileness. Yeah,
1: and not actually just controversial statements. I don't really make jokes anymore on Twitter. So my friend Caroline Crowder Perry said to me, I really like the book because you're able to be funny in it. And I thought, well, that's true, actually. I wouldn't now. There are so many jokes that I've made in the book that I wouldn't make on Twitter because it's not worth the mimsy little policing of them that kind of comes back to you and the kind of bad faith misreadings. And I think, it, again, it comes back to this idea about women having to be very controlled and perfect, right? You you have to sort of protect yourself by limiting how much of yourself is is visible. And that does mean that you kind of can't show all of the rounding of your personality. I love making terrible jokes, but... It's just not worth it. It's just not.
0: (laughs) I love making jokes and then find out that a lot of them are terrible. Right. (laughs) Now, you have a law named after you. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Lewis Law, which states that the internet comments on any article about feminism justify feminism.
1: What I love about that, law is it's slightly becoming obsolete as everyone catches up to my long-standing belief that internet comments are a terrible thing. They're not democratic voice of the people at all. They're a small, self-selecting group of people who therefore unreasonably dominate debate. In the same way that I wrote for the Atlantic a piece that said the Twitter electorate is not the real electorate. And I think you're seeing that. I mean, I think that you're getting people who don't understand that their lives are very unlike the majority of the electorate. And just because everybody they speak to on a daily basis things a particular thing it's not a particularly widely held opinion so there are all these kind of Bernie Sanders supporters tweets that say things like you know the establishment was against him and you're kind of like well mm, but actually what really did for him is black democrats in South Carolina you know these people are not the elite or the establishment he just failed to win the broad coalition of the actual democratic base but because they live in the Twitter bubble I don't think they meet those people or think about those people.
0: Now, coming to your book, where we've been talking about how difficult it is for women to be received as their full selves, whether that's in politics, whether that's as a journalist and certainly in the online environment. And so we'd have the book about difficult women. Now, you were motivated to write this book because you thought that we weren't seeing feminist heroes as the full package, as complex people with aspects of their character that were good and were bad. Uh, can you talk to us about what brought you to that perspective that we needed another way of telling our feminist history?
1: People had pitched me the idea of writing a, a feminist history and originally it was sort of in like a 100 objects, like that brilliant book about the history of the world in 100 objects. And I, I've been kind of thinking about using that sort of thematic way of doing it rather than a purely chronological one. And then a friend of mine, a male friend, suggested, well, why don't you call it difficult women? Because it was the time when Ken Clark had referred to Theresa May as a bloody difficult woman. And it was a word that kind of kept coming up. David Plant wrote a book in 1983. It was a biography of Jean Rees, who wrote *Wide Sargasso Sea, of Sonia Orwell and of Germaine Greer, and it was called difficult women. Roxanne Gay had a short story collection called that and they were all kind of about this idea that we just sand off the edges of female pioneers to make them kind of more palatable and respectable. The suffragettes being the classic example of this so my image of a suffragette you know the biggest pop culture image of a suffragette is probably the dippy mother in Mary Poppins right <laughs> who is you know very posh and sort of oblivious and leaves her kids at home and goes off to these lovely meetings about for women which is actually a kind of standard anti-suffragette satirical caricature and actually there were you know there were only 1500 suffragettes but they saw themselves as an army they were incredibly disciplined and also they were incredibly violent and that's the thing i find fascinating is that they were regarded by the british state as dangerous subversives they were surveilled they were imprisoned they were force fed you know they were let out on license and then brought back in again once they'd you know fed themselves up a bit when, after force feeding became too controversial to use but the list of things that they did you know they burnt down the orchid house at Kew Gardens they poured acid on golf greens they cut telephone wires they bombed post boxes they slashed the ropey venus in the national gallery they bombed the chancellor's empty house they threw a hatchet at the prime minister if this was happening now you would say this is an all out terrorist campaign being waged by women against the government and i thought it was quite important to reclaim that to talk about that because when we talk about politics now I think there's a tendency for people to go oh the titans of the past why is everything so squalid why is everyone arguing about such small issues now and no that's politics right that's it's just eternally like that but what lasts are the achievements and I wanted to turn feminism back to being what what's the next achievement what's the next thing that will actually be written in stone when we kind of come and tell this history
0: I think the telling of the history of the suffragettes is a, a great example. It's only, of course, one example in your book. But when we look back at that history, have we flattened it down? And by the word we there, I mean the whole society. Have we flattened it down because we want to tell a different story to girls, we want more perfect role models, role models who weren't using violence as a tool. We don't want to tell that story. We want to tell a story about female activism, but we want to sort of sanitise it. Is that the reason it's been flattened down or is the reason that it's been flattened down that the history of feminist achievement becomes more anodyne because people want to make it look like these achievements were easily won. We very nice in this case, you know, parliamentary men, we're very nice parliamentary men listened and we gave you X and good guys us. Once these things become accepted as, you know, the norm, I mean, anybody today, if asked, should women have a vote, would just look at you quizzically, yeah. like what on earth are you on about, of course, women should vote. So once it gets to that stage is the impulse to tell the history as if this was always inevitable and in fact relatively easily won when the truth is different.
1: I think that definitely happens. I just saw a video someone posted um, of Tony Blair having a go at someone who said that, you know, Labour didn't do enough in the last year. And he was going, you know, we did the minimum wage, we cut child poverty, we cut pensioner poverty. And the thing is, it's very hard for people to keep in their minds the alternate timeline of a Conservative government, right? They compare that Labour government versus perfection, rather than versus Conservatives. And I think that something like that happens with Feminist history as well, where once you get progress, people assume that it's natural. People are very ungrateful. <laughs> it's a real problem for politicians, I guess, because, you know, ultimately, it's only your failures, really, they're going to get remembered and picked over. But, you know, I, I always think about the fact that I take it for, absolutely for granted. I walk to my tap in my kitchen, I turn it on, and it doesn't give me cholera. You know that's a result of years of you know the sewage system in London and public health interventions all of that stuff you know the minimum wage now seems like well of course there should be a flaw on how much you could you could pay people but it was incredibly contested and it was sold as you know it's going to destroy jobs when it came in progress erases struggle particularly when it comes to women you would assume well, I mean this is phrasing it very broadly but because women aren't very good at stuff anyway if they manage to achieve stuff it can't have been that hard to achieve right yeah. <laughs> so you, you lowball a bit the kind of incredible difficulty of it and the suffragettes you know they faced these huge demands about the fact they should be splitting their time with other causes you know what irish home rule was a cause at the same time for example universal suffrage for men was a cause at the time and they would you know people were saying well why are you just mono-monomaniacal about this why do you only care about women why aren't you doing x and it was such a reminder of the kind of classic internet man thing of what are you doing about Saudi Arabia? What are you doing about FGM? And to which the answer is obviously I, there's not a lot I personally can do about Saudi Arabia. But however, I do live in Britain, I'm a British citizen, I write in British newspapers. I do have some measure of influence here, so it's not surprising that my focus is here. But it was quite reassuring to know that the suffragettes had been through that as well. And I think your second, or rather your first point, is, is entirely true as well, which is we see history as something to teach children, and therefore we want to sand it down to easy moral lessons, I think. And that's, you know, there is an age appropriate time to be teaching people about force feeding, for example. But it becomes so much about saints in stained glass windows. And, you know, we don't just have these conversations about feminism, we have them about Britain's tortured history with imperialism, about the legacy of that, about the fact that Winston Churchill, both, you know, the man who stood up to the Nazis, led us in our darkest hour, and the careless politician who was implicated in the Bengal famine, which killed hundreds of thousands, millions of people. That's really difficult, but I think there's also a a tendency in people, they don't want to celebrate people that they feel are flawed, right? Because they don't want someone to come along and go, oh, I see, You you don't care about X. And of course you do, but nonetheless you can still celebrate their achievement. And so that tendency was something I was trying to pick at as well. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
0: And let's take a really hard example of that from your book. You talk about Mari Stopes Mm -hmm. and people would recognise that name because it's now synonymous with the provision of birth control and reproductive rights in many parts of the world. And she did campaign for birth control, but she was also a fan of Hitler, of, you know, sort of selective breeding for results. That's a huge issue. It's
1: quite a big black mark on your charge sheet, certainly. I mean, yes, yes, she was a a eugenicist. And the debate is about whether or not she wanted to support women to have the number of children they wanted, or she believed in state control of that. But again, I think the interesting thing is to look at the context in which that happened, because you can flatly condemn eugenicism, obviously you should, but in order to actually learn the lessons of history, it's more interesting to understand them. And what happened is after the First World War, huge numbers of millions of men lost in it, huge backlash to the fact that women had moved into the factories they were required to give up their jobs for returning servicemen go back into the home and at the same time there were deep fears about the birth rate and the idea you know one of the reasons that football got banned for women in 1921 was this idea that actually should should they be really doing all this stuff should they be out of the home was it going to have adverse effects on you know on their childbearing capabilities if they were running around the fields and that anxiety manifests in a particular way then. I think it manifests in a new way now and I see a resurgence of natalist policies. You get Viktor Orban in Hungary saying we don't need numbers we need Hungarian children. He's talking about immigration, he's talking particularly Muslim immigration. You get natalist policies. China, I've just written a piece about the fact, you know, the one child policy now having been relaxed there's huge pressure on what they call leftover women. Well they're not leftover, there's actually 30 million more men, but the pressure is to get to women to say you are not fulfilled unless you're married and have a child because they're worried about the lack of social stability that's caused by having these quotes unquote extra men. And I think if you, you know, the flat condemnation is one thing but understanding the social currents that led to that movement in the 20s is more useful if you want to be able to understand what's happening right now and that's one of the reasons for me to write history because it's a way of talking about the present without putting anyone's immediate guard up or feeling they have a stake in it you can discuss it much more dispassionately To someone who asked the question, though, should we be celebrating her? This is the the final way I've come down on this. We shouldn't be celebrating her, we should be celebrating her achievements. And her achievement was to get women talking about their bodies, to get women and men understanding the mechanisms of sexual intercourse. I mean, incredible to read it now that people just literally didn't know what sex was and if they were doing it right or wrong. It's kind of mind-blowing to think that now. And somebody who ran clinics for women who incredibly incredibly distressed. There's a letter in the book from a woman who's 37. She's had 14 children, nine of them still alive. She's got a prolapse uterus and doctors say, if you have another baby, it might kill you. And she said, oh, you know, I don't want to leave nine children to practically starve, but no one will tell her. No one will tell her what to do. And that's the achievement I celebrate from Mary Soaps, while also maintaining that she did send poetry to Hitler saying love is the greatest thing in the world, which didn't do the trick, <laughs> to put it mildly.
0: Out of all the difficult
1: women that you discuss in your book and you tell us their full history,
0: do you have a favourite?
1: In personal terms, I have enormous admiration for my three women from Northern Ireland, from Derry, Kitty, Colette and Diana, because they're all in their 60s, 70s, and they bought abortion pills off the internet and then handed themselves in to a local police station. And they did that because, at the time, if the way that the abortion laws worked were that you would get... If you procured an abortion or you had one, you would be prosecuted under the Offences Against the Person Act. That's a piece of assault legislation. You essentially committed an assault. And that shows up on your disclosure and barring checks if you want to work with children or vulnerable adults, and shows up on, say, visa applications to Australia or America. So they said it's not fair for young women who've got their whole lives ahead of them to take that kind of risk of getting that kind of conviction they were well past the age where they were worried about about getting pregnant they decided to do this on behalf of other women and i thought that was really beautiful and really powerful as was the fact that they didn't do it in a you know they had a photographer from the local paper but they didn't do it with any expectation of reward they just wanted to make the statement It was brilliant to meet them because they were ordinary, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. They were indicative of people who don't feel that they're living extraordinary lives or making extraordinary sacrifices, but they were potentially. They were risking years of jail time, and they did it in a completely modest, unassuming way, and that really impressed me.
0: Have you had feedback from women, in particular, reading your book, who have felt like the scales have fallen off their eyes for some of their feminist heroes and they haven't liked it. They've preferred the simpler version, the, you know, sort of feminist sainthood kind of version, the person that they could unambiguously believe in and you've told them this more complex
1: story. Actually, no, I haven't. I wonder, I'm presuming that people who do think that and they hate the book and they hate me and they hate what I've done, do we just <laughs> keep, hopefully keep it to themselves. It would be a, great, a trend that I would <laughs> encourage. Jess Phillips, the MP, reviewed the book in the New States for my old publication she said... You know, what it had done is it had moved them from the kind of woman I would crowdfund for a statue for to the kind of woman I could see myself having a full-on flouncing fight with. And that's kind of what I aimed to do, was to make them feel like real humans in all their kind of three-dimensional horror and glory. And I think what I have more had is people saying that makes them, not like them more maybe, but respect them more and respect their achievements more. Because it feels like someone you know has done something, rather than being told that, you know, all progress depends on this class of sort of superhumans. And it doesn't. It depends on people like us just doing their best and sometimes getting it wrong.
0: And on that, having a flouncing fight with, you've looked at the current state of the women's movement, looked at things like Me Too, and you've said that we're all campaigning and we're vocal and we're noisy, but there's little evidence of any actual concrete changes. Do you think that's a real risk that this is a time where, because of social media, because of the way we exchange views, that there can be any amount of volume out there, but it doesn't translate into action?
1: Yeah, we had a brilliant piece on the Atlantic site that was basically about political hobbyism. And the theory was that kind of white college educated liberals, their idea of participating in politics was to read an article or to tweet something, to care very strongly about an issue. and it wasn't so much based around you know what we now think of as kind of community organizing right you know working in a food bank or volunteering at a local church or whatever it might be and that sense had kind of been lost and i do worry sometimes that people feel incredibly moved by fights in feminism they care about them an extraordinary amount they feel like they're going into battle by arguing with misogynists on twitter what's actually happening is it's taking up an enormous amount of their time but the the car isn't moving forward very much I was delighted to see that Harvey Weinstein was sent to prison for twenty-three years, and I was also actually pleased that he was only convicted on some of the charges because what I thought that said was they'd looked at the evidence in front of them and made a sober assessment. He hadn't, but you know, no one could say that he was on a show trial. He was being the poster boy for me Too, whatever it was. It was very clearly a trial that was about what fits the evidential standard, and that's what we should be going for. But I do, I do really worry about the next Harvey Weinstein. You know, I. I reviewed, she said, the book by Megan Toohey and Jodie Kandra about their work on the New York Times and said, you know, the trouble is they're like banks, these sexual predators who are incredibly powerful. They're too big to fail. And everybody's got so much investment in them. It's so much easier to turn a blind eye. Why would you be the one who takes the hit? And actually, it's an extra burden, going back to these extra burdens on women, that they have to be the ones. They're the ones who can't afford to turn a blind eye because it's happening to them. Whereas the powerful men around that powerful man it's not an existential issue for them and that's what really I think worries me about it is what's changed now that means the next Harvey Weinstein doesn't happen I hope that people have more of a sense that they'll be believed when they speak out that they won't be instantly dismissed but in terms of getting legal representation in terms of employment tribunals I don't know if that has necessarily got easier. And
0: so what would you be recommending that women listening to this, women who have got maybe some ability to campaign themselves for changes, what is it that we're not doing?
1: One thing I think we should definitely ask for is better funding for legal aid. We were very lucky that um, the Supreme Court ruled upfront tribunal fees were illegal and people got refunded if they'd paid them. That was just a barrier to entry in the doors of justice. One of the things I worry about is the way that both actresses at the top of the kind of food chain and agency cleaners at the bottom both have these very insecure worlds of work. You know, Stella Creasy's been doing some interesting work about trade unions for freelancers, and I wonder about that, about how you recreate old employment protections for people who are working in much more casual, fragmented sectors. That's got to be a huge worry about exploitation there because you just you have no job security at all so it's going to be completely easy to let you go rather than deal with the problem so that's stuff i i would definitely look at i end the book by saying we should go back to the first four demands of the women's liberation conference in oxford in 1970 the first of which is free universal 24-hour childcare <laughs> and you think okay guys well you know aim big dream, dream a little i like that but nonetheless you know both childcare and now increasingly adult social care and elderly care are a huge barrier to women's participation in public life and you know luckily more and more men are shouldering the burden of that but um you know the economy and capitalism is flattered enormously by the amount of unpaid caring labor that goes on and i don't think that's particularly just so that's that's one of the ones i would go back to Is one of the
0: lessons to take with us that we should be teaching the next generation to not be so nice? Yeah, be
1: kind... Don't be nice. Don't be a doormat. There's a great quote from Rebecca West, which is, you know, I do not know what a feminist is. People only call me one when I say do, or do something that can distinguish me from a doormat. And she adds, or a prostitute. Most people cut that off now because it's ironically seen as too difficult. So I that's one of the things that I think is really important is women are constantly being told to be nice, budge up. And you can sort of tell when you're doing real feminism as opposed to kind of synthetic Rah, rah, corporate, feel good, you know, empowerment cobblers when people get genuinely annoyed with you and actually feel a bit, you feel a bit of resistance to you. I, you know, I definitely notice the difference between sort of saying like, you know, women, ask for pay rises, do this, you know, all that kind of feminism that's a style about telling women they're doing something wrong versus telling people in power that they're doing something wrong and we should challenge them. And that's the when you feel the real resistance. Love it. Thank you.
0: Now, at the end
1: of each podcast, we
0: come to a series of questions that I put to all of my guests. Mm-hmm. We start with a fact, and your fact is, a study conducted in 2010 by the Harvard Kennedy School showed that when participants saw female politicians as power-seeking, they also saw them as unsupportive and uncaring, while this was not true for their perceptions of power-seeking male politicians.
1: Do you think that's still the case? This is a 10-year-old study? I'm pretty sure that held for Clinton when they looked through her time as Secretary of State and versus seeking the presidency. So I think it's got good evidence that it was true as recently as 2016. I think the really fascinating thing to me now is that we are, I hope, slowly, little by little, normalising the idea of female leadership. You know, when there was a time when Theresa May as Prime Minister could get on the phone to Mary Lee Macdonald in Ireland or Nicola Sturgeon or Leanne Wood, that actually you could end up with more than one woman at a time in politics, which is kind of what needs to happen to normalise it. It needs to become just as mundane and regular as, as men in politics. So I think it's going to be slow progress. One of the things I think is the problem is it that picking the woman always feels like an exception, right? It always feels like a definite choice and it twangs back to the default. I think the same is true for ethnic minority politicians, that actually there's a kind of, well, this is what power looks like and we've made an active choice that we'll have a woman this time. And I think after the... When Theresa May stepped down, there was this almost a sense of, we don't even need to think about having a woman this time because we did that, few, right? We've ticked our box, we're not sexist. Rather than being like, well, 50% of the population are women, so by chance it could just as easily be a woman this time. It was a sort of sense of... no. That's why We've done that. Back to business as usual. What's the worst misogyny you've dealt with in your career? I think if you go and look at the comments underneath my YouTube interview with Jordan Peterson, you will see misogyny in it's pretty much in its rawest form. I find them kind of morbidly fascinating. My husband was like, why are you reading this? And I was like, but look at them. They're so interesting. They're all because they revolve so much around the same tropes. So the first one is that I'm completely stupid. I'm just stupid and I'm brain dead and I'm programmed. And I think, all right, mate, you get out there and have a go at doing a 30-minute on-camera interview with somebody about across a whole range of subjects. We'll see how you get on. And then obviously there's the ones about how I'm incredibly ugly. They hate my hair. They think I'm too pale, which, to be fair to them, they were right about because it, it turned out I had a quite a serious vitamin D deficiency at the time. So I probably should have got a bit of sun. And then there's a whole strain about how the fact that I must be a feminist purely because you know I'm so repulsive and I can't succeed at being beautiful. There's a lively strain of having a goat who I met. I'm, I make a joke about my husband by referring to him as, by saying, Oh, well, I'm currently married, but I'll revise it to him. And people can't see that I've made a self deprecating <laughs> joke. They think that I've cunningly given away my sort of feminist agenda that I'm like this black widow making my th- way through endless men. Like, Oh, I see, she says her current husband. You no, know, it's well welcome to humour. But it's just all of these tropes that are about, about women that they are just, they're, that they're stupid, that they're ugly. They must only be feminist if they're unattractive. And that their husband must be. as he, My husband put on. A, he made me a Christmas card with some of like some of the insults. As, he was described as a beta cuck. It was it was shaming for him to be married to me because he essentially kind of couldn't control me, right? And I thought, wow, this is really interesting because this is prop. This is like the kind of old school, mm, mm, delicious tasting, right? rather than what you get now, which is a lot of ironic misogyny or people scolding women but pretending to be progressive I don't know if you see this ever but I see lots of people who really love telling women off but they find a re there is always a reason now actually no I really need to correct you and you think you know that's kind of what the guys who burned witches and put the scolds bridal thought on mysteriously they also needed to correct women for very good reason very understandable reasons But, yeah, I mean, I can't believe I've just recommended that people read YouTube comments. I mean, (laughs) as a general thing, don't. Don't do that.
0: Just as an investigation in this case, not otherwise. What's the one thing you would change for women if you found yourself for a moment in the happy position where you had all the power in the world?
1: I'm I'm aware I'm probably going to say something that's actually a really terrible idea, but I genuinely think that artificial external wombs would probably sort out a lot of problems overnight, really, because they would just take all of that out from being... Uh, something that's seen as as women 's issues and you know, and, and women 's thing to deal with, and you genuinely start having conversations about how, in any one particular relationship you split up those duties. We know from the studies that same sex couples are much more equitable in how they shall share household tasks because they't you know they don't have the patterns that they just people end up snapping to, and you know the biology is, is obviously not the same in the case of gay men, but then someone's going to tell me that this is an awful idea and actually would lead to sort of mad max so I I'm aware that I may have made a terrible suggestion.
0: That's all right. Suggestions are all worth discussion, so we we want them all. Now, Virginia Woolf says, blame it or praise it. There is no denying the wild horse in us. Hmm. Helen says.
1: I love Virginia Woolf. I quote in the book both from Three Guineas and from A Room of One's Own, and they're 100 years old now pretty much. And there still is worth reading now. I mean, I'm thinking about what my next book might be. (laughs) Ah, Why am I saying this? And I keep thinking about A Room of One's Own and about two of the things. Her idea that the sentence, Chloe liked Olivia, was was unheard of in English literature. This idea you might be interested in the relationships between women. I think that's a really profound point. But the second is the the story of Judith Shakespeare, you know, who had exactly the same genius as her brother William, but was told to make the soup and then goes to London, wants to be an actor and gets laughed at, you know, has a relationship with a company manager, gets pregnant. Goes home you and know, kills herself And is buried under where the omnibuses go On the Elephant and Castle And she's so acute about how the way The little tiny dings that, that send you In one direction or another That you might not even see at the time That I would always recommend But then a difficult woman right Incredibly snobby <laughs> and a lot of, I'm sure Virginia Woolf has got some opinions That I really would not want to stand by But also in the terms of the clarity of her prose And the clarity of her thought Excellent Terrific. Thank you very much. And thank you for the book, Difficult Women. You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with King's Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. And come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard.